RNMD is a show about hospital relationships from the perspective of doctors and nurses. You're very smart, and we know that you would never come to a podcast for medical advice. So obviously, call your non-podcasting doctor and nurse team if you need any medical care. Oh, and we should also mention that we don't represent any hospital at all, ever. Okay, start the thing. And welcome to another episode of RNMD. I'm your nurse host, Abby, and today we have part two of the NPMD episode. You guys have shown so much love for um, part one, and I'm just so, so, so grateful. And I love you guys so much, and thank you so much. So, I'm going to keep the intro nice and short today. Um, If you don't mind, please just like um, the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, leave a review, leave a comment. Um, That really helps us grow. That really helps um, what we're doing and um, share, share the episode that you like. Um, Those are free ways that you can help support us and we really appreciate it. Okay, here we go. The next topic is Tara's topic. So I'm going to let her take it. Okay. So she suggested that we talk about NPs supervising residents. Yeah, I guess my first question would be if anyone else has experienced this. I think I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast at my particular hospital, we have a couple different areas of the hospital where residents are directly supervised by APs, APPs, sorry, that take on a more of a a fellow-like role. So for example, in our NICU and our NICU and on our hematology oncology floor, the APPs take on a supervising role. I don't know if anyone else has that experience. I guess that'd be my first question before I say my opinion on it. Yeah. When I was a resident in the neonatal ICU, we had a similar setup. And I don't, I don't know about you, Matt, in all of the intensivists that I have interacted with both as visiting residents, visiting fellows, the people that I work with full time, they all have admitted that they all learned how to do certain aspects of their job from an APP, whether a physician assistant or a nurse practitioner. That, that is unquestionable. I mean, that for us, for us, that's built into our curriculum. I mean, our, our APPs teach, teach the residents how to do procedures and then they're on the same, they serve on the same teams taking care of patients. So they definitely learn from them more specifically to what the, the topic though, is direct supervision in the way that they're the primary responsible to the NP and is learning primarily from the NP, I think is the topic if i'm not wrong about that mm-hmm. okay so it's slightly different gonna, but yeah absolutely I'm ask the the nurse practitioners and outpatient if they have an experience with that before i answer i would love to have medical students i don't know if i'd feel i've never done that i don't know if i feel comfortable having an intern only learn from me but i do love teaching but i, I we don't have a formal program we don't have a formal agreement with a program yeah i don't I don't really get many students because my age group is just very, very small. So a student would actually need additional preceptors if they precepted with me. I'm always willing to take them though. But 
I did rotate through a couple of federally qualified healthcare clinics and I did see nurse practitioners that precepted med students and, you know, I mean, they kind of mixed it up through providers, which I thought was a good experience. So, and correct me if I'm wrong, the physicians on the call, the ACGME does not recognize nurse practitioner physician assistants as, as educators. So you can't, you can't clock any of my hours that, that I give you and I get no, I get no recognition for it whatsoever. So to answer Tara's question, I am inherently involved in the residency education in the critical care department. I'm one of the most senior APPs with the most experience that has helped build the program. So on paper, no, I don't teach a single resident. (laughs) But in reality, I'm one of their primary educators because the attending can't be everywhere. The attending's busy supervising all of the care on all the patients. So, and that, that could be a whole other conversation on the, the format and how you, you split up the, the roles and responsibilities. But, you know, if you, my numbers are like average 15 beds in an ICU. And depending on how things are working that day, I can see all those patients and be the primary, I'd be the one who writes the notes. Now, on paper, the attending has to supervise all of that. And they are, respon- they are ultimately responsible at the end of the day. So the attending supervises me, who supervises the resident and fellow. But I've taught fellows, I've taught residents, I've taught interns. But I'm a specialist. I teach them critical care. I don't teach them medicine. I don't teach them primary care. I teach them what, what happens within the walls of my ICU. So I take full responsibility for that. And, it, and it's, it really has to do with the format of your program. And I don't know if Matt's is, it sounds like it's, it's a similar format that when the resident shows up for the first day or whatever, they come see me first, mostly because I'm there first, but they come see me first. We have a powwow on who's seeing who and what's going on in the unit. And then, you know, the day starts, but they report to the attending. They don't, they don't necessarily sign off to me other than they'll, hey, Sean, so if I do this, do you think that's the right thing to do? That kind of thing. Or if the attending is busy doing something, I will supervise them doing procedures that I am qualified to supervise them on. But on paper, none of that happens. It's good grief. I can't believe I'm saying this. It's, it's, it's illegal. You know, so, but there's what happens on paper and then there's, you know, the education that you actually get. So, I mean, I, in a, in a proper environment, if I'm not mistaken, there isn't a resident alive that didn't learn something from an APP, but I don't think any APP is the primary educator. Does that sound about right? Yeah. And I guess I should clarify, I 100% agree with everything you've said. I have learned from everyone in the hospital. I think experience is the best teacher. And I think anyone in the hospital who's experienced in any way has something to offer in terms of my education. The reason I brought it up as a potential topic to Abby was because I think from my co-residents and residents I've spoken to at other institutions and what I've seen on Instagram on some of the more popular pages is that that's an area of angst for a lot of residents when NPs are their supervisors and they're asked to report to MPs. 
rather than to the attending physician. And the MPs are the ones that are primarily responsible for their education in whatever the unit may be, rather than the attending. Just like you said, I think there's a lot of nuance involved in that in legally what's happening versus what's actually happening on the floor and how it meets or does not meet ACGME requirements for education. But that was really the reason I brought it up was because I have seen it as a source of angst. But I would 100% agree with you. I have learned immensely from everyone I've interacted with in the hospital, especially our APPs who are experienced, especially those in the ICUs. I rely on them so heavily because just you're there all the time. I float in for a month and I leave. And I think all of the attending physicians I've worked with and co-residents would agree with that. But I think there's a, a slight difference with the the supervision aspect that I think causes some angst. Yeah, it's uh, interesting. I mean, I, at the end of the day, I'm being supervised by the attending. I don't know. I guess it's just the way my mind, the way my mind thinks, especially in critical care. You know, an example would be resident of whatever varying education is doing a, a radio art line. Now, the attending is busy doing three other things with three other patients. So I'm in the room supervising the patient to make sure that, or supervising the resident to make sure that they're doing it appropriately because I've been doing it for eight years. So I've done a few. It's not that mm -hmm. I'm the primary supervisor or they're reporting to me. I don't know. I guess it, it really is. It's nuanced. But I think at the end of the day, it's where is displaced anger? I mean, you know, and I've had that happen often where residents, they do, they have a bit of a, a kind of attitude like, well, you're just, you're just the nurse practitioner. And then they spend a day or two with me and realize, oh, okay, maybe you can teach me something. You know, and if the attending relies on me heavily, I'm pretty sure you can too, you know. So, yeah, maybe it's, I don't know, it's stereotypes. Is it what is being told to them by somebody else? You know, because sometimes residents show up, you know, they, the, the ER residents will talk to each other when they come in, rotate through the ICU. Okay, here's the person you want to talk to. These are the things you want to do. These are the things they expect. And then there's other educational programs where they come in blind. And the only experience they ever had with an NP was an outpatient experience that was negative. So, I mean, yeah, experience is, a, is, a, is an amazing educator. I'm, I say it all the time that experience trumps everything. <laughs> I guess the, the thing I would offer as the, I 100% agree, experience is the most important thing. The times I've seen it especially cause angst is there have been times where an APP who just graduated a few months ago is a direct supervisor. So we are being asked to then, as a second or third year resident, report to an APP who's out of school for a few months. And so their experience in the unit even might be less than what ours is. Their experience out of school might be less than what ours is, but we're still being asked to report to them. So I think that definitely is a source of angst for sure. But I 100% agree with you. I, especially with the APPs of of experience. I know all of our attendings rely on them so heavily because the attendings time in the unit is less than theirs usually as well. So I would hundred percent agree with you with that, Sean. I think like another thing this brings up for me is like the bell curve conversation again of like, there are, there are different. And I talk about this a lot with my newer clinicians is like the newer providers is that there's a, there are guidelines and there's stylistic choices and that art of medicine. And I think that's another, like I I can't imagine 
that feeling of being supervised by a, by a nurse practitioner who just graduated as a, as a resident, that would, that's hard to imagine that actually exists just because there's so much to learn. But I think that like, for me in my situation, like if I, if I were to be the person like training the intern through the, to the attending, I feel like my attending and I would have this like cohesive, like I would know very well their style of practice and like, I know what they know, you know what I mean? So like, I feel like that is so important because like, you can ask, you can, you can bypass me, but I'm going to tell you what I was going to say, for example, do you know what I mean? So yeah, I, that's, I can't, that's really interesting that they would choose to, is that really happened in your pro? You said that that actually happens in your program, that they have a brand oh, yeah. supervising that's interesting. Oh yeah. We've had multiple. That's yeah. Really that's, it happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and I think it gets to the larger question or I guess topic of that residence. We, like we have finished school. Like I have my MD. I had to do third and fourth year clinical rotations and I go to residency and I'm still viewed as a student in many ways. And I get it. My clinical experience is much less than many people in the hospital, but for whatever reason, there's this difference in the grace that's offered to residents than the grace that's offered to APPs in that training period where, and it gets to all the issues we've talked about, like the pay issue between that residents have. And again, I'm, I don't think anyone would argue that APP should be paid less, but residents are MDs that have finished school and are in their training the same way that an APP who's finished their school has to go through some on-the-job training. And it's, I think, unfortunate that our on-the-job training is viewed as less than, than APPs in many ways and in many parts of the hospital and in our salary. And yeah, it's definitely something I've experienced. It's an area of angst that I see amongst a lot of residents for sure. I completely agree. That's really great. Good point. Okay. I don't want to I don't want to rush us, but I just want to let you guys know by some kind of miracle, we're at like the bottom of the second to last page of the outline. So, we're like right there. Okay. So, if we could just I know it's this is a big heavy topic and I appreciate you guys hanging in there strong with me. There's like just a handful more and then I'll let you guys get back to your night. Okay. So let's talk about pay. Like, I mean, this leads us into pay. I looked up some averages. Obviously the averages are kind of skewed. Like I didn't see New York City represented at all within this. So these are just, you know, averages, exactly what they are. So the national average for a hospitalist is 171K. Okay. The national average, this is according to Glassdoor, the national average for an NP is 110K. I mean, go go for it. Discuss. <laughs> I like, I, I, one of the things, because again, I do primary care. I think the, the main thing that frustrates me about this like independent practice question is that, for example, I've been a nurse practitioner for five years. And so I'm technically, like, I'm not an attending, I'm not a physician, I'm not claiming to be that but I literally do the exact same job as other physicians, same patients, same workload. Like in my current clinic, they, like I have one less patient per session, which is nice for equity. Like, okay, I get paid less. I can see like two less patients per day. But for example, like, and I see patients every 15 minutes. And again, they're not triage. It's not like I'm seeing, oh, the sick patients with the URI. It's like, no, no, no. I'm seeing somebody with like end-stage renal, end-stage liver, like all this stuff, you know? And so I think 
getting a little heated, but I think, <laughs> I think that the thing that I think about it is like, so for example, when I get to 17 years of nurse practitioner experience in primary care and I'm still making whatever, you know, like I think our average, so I, I work very part-time because I do my business now, but like, you know, so my, my physician colleague moved to a different health center and is making 250 a year, it's $250,000 a year in a federally qualified health center seeing 12 patients a day. And like, it's just, it's, it's painful. The, the equity is painful because I'm not, I don't do the same job, but like, where is that line between, I don't want to see less sick patients, right? I love it. I love medicine. It's so fun. But like that just, that, that's the only thing that riles me because it doesn't feel fair. But at the same time, for example, the freedom of being a nurse practitioner, family nurse practitioner is that I can go into neurosurgery you know, after 17 years and that's my first year. And so do I get to make $250,000 a year? You know what I mean? So like, I don't feel, I, I feel very conflicted about it, but I definitely am frustrated with that question. I don't think I have a good answer for that question and a good solution for that, but that's very painful. I'll say that I get paid less as a nurse practitioner right now than I did as a nurse working in the ER. However, my workload is totally different. And because I work in schools, I have all summer off and I never work a weekend or a night or anything. So that's kind of wonderful. At the same time, I need to pay for an attending physician for, I mean, a collaborative agreement with a physician who will never step foot inside my clinic. And I mean, we pay multiple physicians to go ahead and have collaborative agreements with our nurse practitioners who will never, ever see our patients. And it's just because we need it in our state. And our nurses, I mean, our nurse practitioners do not make a lot of money. You know, it's public health, school nursing, but you're an NP. So, you know, and we all love the job, but it's just, you know, the pay's not there and the money's never going to be there in school school health or that type of, that type of job. And I wonder too, I'm not that savvy with insurance. But like there is the question of when a nurse practitioner sees a patient, you get 85% reimbursement. Again, I like, I, I, maybe things have changed and maybe things are different, but I feel like there's, there's this, I don't know, that feels so sour. You know, it's like, we're doing the same thing and seeing the same patients. Yeah. And we don't even, where I work, we don't even get reimbursed if it's commercial insurance. We only get reimbursed for Medicaid. So all of our you know, our funding comes from a bunch of different sources and a small portion of that is from the patients that we actually see. So, yeah. <laughs> doctors, what do you think? And I just say before the doctors say anything, I also have extreme empathy because of how, like how much you're working right now and how many years of school you're going through. So like, I also like see the other side of it where it's like, whew, you know, putting in your time. Yeah, I have no no sore feelings about physicians making more money than me after all the schooling that they go through and what you guys do. I mean, I feel as though you really do get the short end of things when it comes to residency. And, you know, I have a lot. I mean, I, you guys definitely deserve more. No sore feelings at all. I feel as though there's lots of room for all of us to get paid a bit more and <laughs> for all of us to have um, a better working environment. 
But I don't know if anyone else noticed, but the th- the three physicians that are on this call, all all three of their faces are the exact yeah. same. Yeah, I noticed. I saw it. Yeah. It was the most politically neutral facial expression yeah. you could come up with. Like <laughs> Wait, no us, smile, no feeling. nothing. They were just like, oh. we're here to hold I'll, you I'll, and support you and hear you. I'll I'll, I'll, he, I'll go I'll go for it. Okay. Yeah. So I think. The, and a reason that's probably good for me to speak first is because I made it through the other side and and our, our other two are still still in training. So their 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 feelings are going to be stronger in a different way, I think. You know, having come through everything so far and finally making a living wage, it's incredible. The I, I think in the first place, it's I agree. It's kind of weird. Like, why would you mark somebody's pay at 80% for the same services that that part doesn't really jive with me that, I mean, I don't, I don't understand the rationale for, I mean, I, I can understand a historical, not understanding the value of APP's rationale for it, but in the modern world, it doesn't really make any sense to me. If Sean's at the bedside for 30 minutes of critical care time, I don't know why his is less than mine. It doesn't really make sense. Probably a bigger issue that would take down the anxiety from the physician side significantly would be just like the lost, I guess, you know, the things that we, we did to get where we are. I have a lot of debt from med school and I was not really paying on it while I was in resident, you know, when I was in six years of postgraduate training. So there's a lot of deferred, you know, wages and a lot of delayed gratification. And, and I think that makes it a little bit more challenging. So I, so again, I don't want to take money from anybody else. I don't think that's, that's the point, but what, what does need to change is the way that we prepare and educate physicians in this country. You know, a lot of international medical graduates don't pay for med school or they pay little for med school. Here we pay hundreds of thousands of dollars. Again, similar to the nursing programs, very different levels of quality. And sometimes the schools that are lower quality are actually more expensive. You know, it's not a quality-based metric, the fee structure. So I think that's the challenge is just figuring out how to make things less painful for physicians along the way to get to the point where we're finally done. But does it make sense that to make 80% for doing the same, essentially the same work? That doesn't make any sense to me either. I'm ambivalent. I don't have. You don't have an opinion about this one? I, I don't. I really don't because <laughs> I am, once again, I'm biased because I worked a long time as a bedside nurse and worked up a lot of my pay increases were cumulative. And then when I moved from RN to NP, I got a huge pay raise and I'm in a specialty area in critical care and I was in an underserved area and I was one of the very first few NPs in my practice where I'm at. So my, I, I get paid well. I don't, Mm -hmm. I never, I never tell the number, but I get paid well. And I, I'm far above the median. I think physicians should absolutely get paid more than us. You know, they're in an educational system way longer than us and at a much higher intensity and require so much more than us. The the insurance with the 85% and 100%, I, I agree with Matt, like what's the reasoning behind that? Other than preparation that the physician compared to me has prepared way more than I have, so they've earned it. I don't know because he's right. You know, I I could do the exact same work as Matt at the bedside in critical care and I can't bill for what he bills. I don't, it doesn't what make would, any sense to me either. 
I guess here's my question because everything at the end of the day is money driven, right? We have to acknowledge that. So if they paid a hundred percent reimbursement for an NP, why would they hire a doctor, right? What would be the reason? They could get one doctor in that whole building and just run the whole thing with NPs. Well, I feel like this comes back to that question that I have about regulation versus ethics, right? Because the reality of like quality, like high quality patient care we're looking at a balance because we all recognize that we bring different skill sets to the table versus the regulation because there are people who are not upholding ethical standards. That's my perspective on it. Mm-hmm. But like salary conversation, it's just it really, like I actually just brought up that point because it's just like that's like the main philosophical issue that I have with it. I don't actually care, you know, because I'm really happy doing my work. But like I think it just really points to the whole system of like, that's just not right, that there's so much debt and there's so many years and so much pain and so much abuse in this medical training system that it like, that's what's worth it. That doesn't seem right. Yeah. Let let me ask this question, you know, and unfortunately only those who are not in training can maybe ask, answer this. Is it, have you always been happy with your pay or did you feel that you should be paid more? Because I, I mean, most medical professionals feel like they should be paid more. What that number is, I don't know. Maybe it's a percentage. Maybe it's a whole number. I, I don't know. But across the spectrum of medical professionals, from CNAs all the way to physicians, it seems like it's never enough. Everybody wants more. But I think it comes down to the, you know, the balance within your lifestyle or, or your life is that you you borrow and are in debt so much money in order to create this life that you want and this, this, this career you want. But then hopefully by the time you're done at the end of your journey, that you're making enough money to enjoy the life that you've created without having to work your fingers to the bone just to pay off the debt that you created to create the life, you know? So it's, it's like a double-edged sword, you know? And most people that I've interacted with are angry and upset or unhappy because that balance is not in their favor, that they feel like all of the years that they put forth into their career has not been worth it, that they're not being compensated for whatever it is they put into it, whether it's years, money, or pain, <laughs> you know, that, that you don't feel like you're getting compensated appropriately. I don't, I don't know what that number is, but like, what, what do we consider to be, I feel compensated? I don't know. I think your question even drives to like, what actually brings many nurses to go ahead and pursue NP, the NP track. You know, I mean, like we're, I remember, you know, I'm in the ER and I'm juggling six, seven patients and I'm being paid. But at the end of the day, I'm saying, is this really worth it for me to go ahead and just run my butt off? Or do I go ahead and, um, you know, I mean, try to keep these patients out of the emergency room. And that's eventually what drove me into this is like, you know, I mean, half these people don't even need to be here if they had access to primary care services. So it's like, you know, I mean, I can, I can make, just as, yeah, I mean, around just as much money working, you know, I mean, during the day and working a little bit smarter. So I think that that also, how, you know, how our medical system, how our system is set up and the fact that it drives so hard on everybody and really crushes so many is what really 
maybe drive some of these nurses and so on to go ahead and pursue more. Yeah. I, I think that's a that's a really good point. And also I want to piggyback off of what Sean said. So you're in an underserved area. I'm in the opposite. I'm in like we're oversaturated over here. NPs can't find a job to save their life. I work with tons of NPs. They're on the floor because it's hard to find. You have to move out of the city, really, if you if you want to do that. The money here also, because most of the hospitals here are union. So the floor nurses make pretty good money and we have great benefits. And to some degree, we're protected if you want to make that transition as an NP, you're not going to necessarily make more money. You might make 10000 more a year than an experienced floor nurse. So it really comes down to quality of life. Like, what do you value more? And I think exactly what you said, Leah, I, I don't think most nurses can make this a career anymore. This is not a 35-year profession anymore. It used to be. And we are literally breaking our backs now and people are just getting out of it in droves. And I think that just, this is just my personal opinion that the AANP is capitalizing on that a little bit. And that combined with us flooding in this market to get away from something we don't want to do, it might give the impression to a new doc, like, hey, we're gunning for your job. Like, I'm the new you, you know, when really I'm just like, get me the hell out of med surge. Like, I can't be here anymore. <laughs> yeah. And I think that goes back into, you know, I mean, as nurses, we need to I, I think even as nurse practitioners, we need to continue to become more, you know, get more into politics, not necessarily for full practice authority, but for improving conditions, you know what I mean? Like safe staffing ratios and so on. That's something that we really, really do need to push for because of patient safety and work satisfaction, you know, I mean, job satisfaction and just that it strengthens our profession. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, we're, we're talking about salary. So, and this is just me personally, when I graduated from nurse practitioner school, I didn't have a whole number in my head of what I thought was going to be fair. I was looking at the whole picture of what's going to be my salary, but what's going to be my work-life balance. I always joke with my physician partners all the time. I'm like, I, I chose this job because I get to go home. Mm-hmm. I chose this job because at 10 o'clock at night, when I see you signing notes, I'm in bed or <laughs> I'm doing something else. I'm not spending 90% of my life in the, in the hospital. I have, I, have a, I have a very nice balance in my life. If I'm stressed out, it's mostly self-induced. Now, thank you, COVID, things have definitely changed. But <laughs> for the most part, you know, is it is it that, you know, physicians and, and nurse practitioners, you go through all of this education and training, and then on the day that you're getting there to graduate, do you have a whole number in your head? Or is it is it something more? Because I guess that's my problem is that, you know, we, we talk about not being paid enough or inadequate salaries, but then when someone says to you, well, okay, well, then what's the number? What's the perfect number for you? But what exactly would make you happy? You know, I don't, nobody likes to answer that question. If you were sitting in, in the interview for the job that you want and they said, we're going to pay you whatever you want, what exactly do you want? Would you be able to tell them that number? At the time that I interviewed for the job that I currently have, I wouldn't have been able to tell them that number. You know, I mean, I've done the research. Everybody does the research on what the median pay is and geographical pay in the area that you're in and years of experience. You come up with this whole number in your head, but 
I don't know. It really depends on what you're what what you're trying to get out of it. Because I would absolutely agree with Leo. You know, I went into nurse to become a nurse practitioner for two reasons. One, because of the nurse practitioners I worked with when I was an RN, because I wanted to do that job. I wanted that responsibility and to be able to do those cool things that they did. But also, I knew I could that that the bedside job was not sustainable for me. You know, there's no way that I could keep doing that, not at that pace. Mm-hmm. So. We yeah. keep talking about this. <laughs> okay, let's move on because I don't want to. <laughs> okay, so you're going to have to, this one's for the doctors and you're going to have to forgive my ignorance because I do not know. I've seen this and I don't know how to say it. Okay, the exam you guys take, you smile, you, how do you USMLE. say USMLE. 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 You say all the letters. Oh, man. That would okay. be so it nice was like if a it was you smile. <laughs> I was like, that's kind of cute. Yeah. Joke, actually. Smile. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should NPs have to take this exam? Yeah. No, I don't no. think so. No. <laughs> yeah. Really? Oh. Yeah. It's um, these things are merit badges that are designed to exclude certain people, include other people. They don't really correlate. The only thing they correlate with is if you'll pass your future board exam. They don't qual- they don't correlate with how good of a physician you'll be because first of all, we don't even know how to measure that. And it's uh, it's to be honest with you, it's probably a money grab, several thousand dollars over a, a handful of years because there's three of them. Actually, no, sorry, there's four of them. And so, no, it's I, I would never, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. I wouldn't wish it on our current trainees. At least some of them now, the first step will be pass fail in the future. But I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody. I don't think it. I don't think it proves anything except that you can test prep and you have enough money to take it. Listen, my mind was blown when I sat down with a group of physicians and they took me through from step one through like when they start residency to taking every single step along the way. And then they backtracked and told me about, you know, matching versus not matching. And I just thought to myself, are you fucking kidding me? Mm-hmm. That's insane. That like... <laughs> It's like a, it's a lottery. Like if I like you and you like me, I might get in. Just <laughs> might. You might be in my top five. We'll let you know. That, that, that's just blows my mind. So sorry, I had to say that. The, the, the amount of respect I have, the amount of stress that is involved in that process, I would have been bald a lot earlier than I am now. <laughs> that, I mean, it just blows my mind. Like you know, we stress about getting into nurse practitioner school or graduating and taking one certification exam. And you guys are taking a, oh, just, oh, just, oh, insane. Gosh, I like that. What do you, what do you, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask this, Abby. I want to know, like from the physicians, like, what do you see the alternatives? Because clearly this is terrible. You know, there are so many like really hard things going on with, with, all of it. You feel like you have an idea. Have you thought about what you want to see different? Like alternatives to medical training in general? Yeah. Like I just feel, I just feel like I keep coming back to the system is so messed up, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts. It's tough because it's really hard, obviously. And there's a lot of times where I was probably not stable, like very much unhinged before uh, step one, especially because that exam score, you're kind of told that it determined your whole fate. I wanted to do family medicine, which is like not exactly 
competitive by any means. They very much view you like holistically and they want to make sure that you can talk to people, you know, general stuff like that. But I also do, I mean, I, I understand the need to assess like minimal competency in some way. So it's really tough to know that like of an alternative other than exams, because that's all we have to standardize all of the different medical schools. I mean, I don't know what there is. I don't think necessarily that we need three of them, um, especially when the second and third one are kind of the same. Uh, we have like a physical exam, like component too, where like 99% of people pass it. For DOs, like I had to go to Conshohock in Pennsylvania. <laughs> I could have gone to Chicago, but the idea of traffic that morning scared me. So I chose to go to Conshohock and I shouldn't make it sound like as dramatic. <laughs> But I don't know. It's just arduous. But I definitely think you learn a lot. I don't know. It's hard when you don't train in one specialty. You train in all of medicine and then you do your residency training. So I kind of like that we have that generalist background before going forward. But I'm going into primary care. So I'm biased. So to Liz's question, maybe the physicians can answer. Has the train physician training always been the same or has it has it changed and when has it changed? I think the biggest dictator of what our medical training postgraduate is, is the ACGME and every specialty is different. Um, so the family medicine rules and curriculum guidelines are different than they are for pediatrics or different than they are for medicine or different than they are from general surgery, et cetera. And the overarching rules in terms of what we are and aren't allowed to do in terms of work hours every week, days off a month, minimum days off a week, et cetera, are the same. I think every specialty and every individual institution has different actual practices in terms of what residents actually do and what they report. And there's been changes, for example, when my mom, who is also a pediatrician trained, there were no work hours in place in terms of maximum hours consecutively that residents were allowed to work. And so she often did 36 to 48 hours in the hospital. And that is no longer allowed. But even within the last year in pediatrics, there have been rule changes in terms of how many nights in a row interns are allowed to work. So it's constantly changing. It's reevaluated every year. And so, yeah, medical training postgraduate has definitely changed. I think COVID has highlighted a lot of differences in medical school training in the, you know, the physical exam tests that Erica's talking about, which is our step two clinical skills wasn't happening during COVID. So how necessary is that? And like she said, it's a test that 99% of United States medical graduates pass. And I think a lot of people view it as a deterrent to international medical graduates because there are a lot of colloquialisms specific to United States medical training that IMGs might not be exposed to. And so it can be a barrier for them to being able to train in the United States. And yeah, COVID's highlight, I mean, Step one, two, three, none of the steps were happening during COVID. They were all postponed. Step three is taken in residency. Steps one and two are taken in medical school. And by residency, you've chosen which specific specialty you're training in. So the fact that I'm in pediatrics, but step three is all of medicine. And I had to answer questions about general surgery and adult medicine and OB-GYN that one, I don't remember and two, don't care about and don't affect my practice of patients was bizarre and very unnecessary seeming to me. 
And there's no rule in terms of what some institutions have rules in terms of when they'd like you to take step three. But for the most part, you can take it any point in residency. So for example, a five-year resident, like in general surgery, might take this four years into their training. So how much about general pediatrics are they going to remember four years into general surgery training? And they're expected to pass this exam while they're studying, while working, maybe 100, 120 hours a week. So it's all pretty ridiculous. I feel so much rage for you. (laughs) (laughs) I want to give you guys just a little bit of, I I was Googling stuff before we did this, just since we're on this topic really quick about residency. This is a whole nother topic. I don't want to deep dive into this too much because this is actually a whole nother episode that we're going to have to do. But like you guys mentioned before, you know, Medicare continues to pay for residency, right? So the number is $10 billion to teaching hospitals, $10 billion to cover the cost of training. And a lot of them, and I'm sure the docs are aware of this, they actually bill, the residents overbill for, so they're profiting off of this while you guys are getting paid less, <laughs> essentially, which is absolutely crazy. Something that the doctors who responded when we did this, you know, long discussion on Instagram about MD, you know, NP, a lot of the doctors responded and said that one of the issues that they had with NPs was that the number of residency spots have not increased since 1997. And medical students, though, are are accepted. The the rate of medical students has gone up, but not residencies. So all these people go through all of this and they pass these tests and then they have nowhere to go. And then they're saddled with all this debt. And then they see a nurse practitioner making this money. And I can understand that frustration. I really can. Okay, here, let's move on because we only have two more things to do and then we can all have wine. <laughs> okay. So Okay, the last two topics, we're going to talk about prescriptive authority and liability. Both of these things are things I know nothing about. So I I need, I need, especially Matt, I need, if you're signing off and you have liability on some of this stuff, I need you to explain <laughs> some of this stuff to me. Yeah, to be honest with you, my 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 knowledge about it is is pretty superficial. But yeah, so anybody that we're supervising, we're ultimately you know sort of the captain of the ship approach in terms of legal liability. So that's that's how things lie now in terms of just whoever we supervise, whether it's a resident, whether it's an APP or anybody else. That's the reality of the way things are. If I'm truly supervising all of these people, that probably makes some good sense. The whole question of the tort system in our country is it could be a podcast in and of itself. And is, is it appropriate for us to pursue legal cases for medical error or, you know, from for, let's say, medical mishappenings anyway, that they happen? That's a different story. And that's a much bigger issue. But I think given the way the current system is built, it probably makes sense the way it is. So what is the exact, like Sean, for example, you're working in the ICU let's say you make a an error like a big one a big error what who's responsible who gets in trouble what happens well b- both of us yeah 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 so no. so to clarify so prescriptive authority is the ability for the nurse practitioner and we're talking NPs not PAs it's the ability for the nurse practitioner to be able to write a prescription for a controlled substance and that can be scheduled four, three, two, one, and it is completely dependent on your state practice acts. So, I, as a nurse practitioner, as an acute care, if I jump state lines and go to a different state, 
my ability to write for a specific drug changes because of state practice acts. Even though my knowledge, education, training, and experience didn't change at all, if I jump over to Ohio, New York, or Maryland, it actually changes all three times because of state practice acts. And it has, and it's integrated into collaborative agreements. So it's two separate things, but it's integrated into collaborative agreement. So in order for me to prescribe a controlled substance, I have to meet certain requirements from the DEA. That's the first step. If you haven't met those requirements, sorry, you don't pass. You don't go anywhere else. The DEA has to say, first of all, you're allowed to apply. Then you can apply. Then after you apply, then you have to ask the state, is it okay for me to do that? And who's going to supervise me while I do that? So then in my state, I have to find a collaborative agreement, a physician who will agree to a collaborative agreement with me. And in inpatient world and in an acute care, inpatient world for a system, it gets convoluted because you have a primary collaborative physician, but then you have extended physicians. So I work with 15 plus physicians. And every time I write a prescription, now every time I write for the, the drug fentanyl, I use fentanyl a lot in the ICU, but I, I, I write it and it goes to the physician on record in the day, which is, could be up to 15 physicians, 15 different physicians. But my prescriptive authority license is attached to my primary collaborative physician. Yeah, it gets very convoluted. <laughs> and then it gets even more complicated if you work in a state of independent practice versus moderate practice or collaborative practice. And I know that that is one of the crutches that the outpatient world has a problem with and why they want independent practice so that they don't have to be attached to a physician in order to care for their patients. So the scenario that we always use in the nurse practitioner world is, I am practicing in BFE with a population of 50 people, and me, an old man doctor who's been here for 120 years, is leaving. He's going to go to Florida. He's, he's, he's retiring in Florida. I no longer can practice and prescribe medication and care for patients until I find a new physician. And in this particular town of 50 people, there are no other physicians. So the 50 people that were seeing me and my old physician now have to go 300 miles north to another place to seek care because the state tells me that I can't do that. I can't prescribe anymore because my collaborative physician is gone and I can't find one. So that's why that is the only instance, and then we're going off topic, big surprise. That's the only time that I feel that independent practice is important, is that patient care suffers in those scenarios. Mm-hmm. That, that, that nothing has changed from an experience and skill level. I'm, Correct. I'm providing the same amount of care, but because of a, a theoretical stipulation that is based in legislation, I can no longer provide care to these patients that need it who can't travel 300 miles north to go get their prescription for their arthritis med. Mm -hmm. The, the question becomes, is it, is it the same? Is it as if the doctor was there? Because 
one of the problems also that people wrote in about this topic is that some of the doctors are not involved. They're, the, even if it's, you know, not independent practice, they're signing the chart. They never saw the patient. They <laughs> yeah. never reviewed the chart. They never saw anything. So where's the line with that? Somebody else want to take this one or I could keep talking. You, come on. <laughs> you know the ball guy. I'll keep talking. Erica, you go. Oh, uh, well, so this is something where I only hear like other people talking about it. I don't have any personal experience and really it's, it's hard for me to have like hard opinions on these things. Usually like all I hear about here is mostly like urgent care stuff. And like the big thing is like, don't go to urgent care because it's just NPs and PAs and they're not supervised, but I don't live in a full practice authority state. So there is someone, I guess, right. Who would be like signing off on their charts or something. I'm not really sure. And that's, I mean, I've never heard of like a very specific, no one ever lists like specific outcomes. They're always just worried about the possibility of a bad outcome when they're talking about it. And so I think it's just difficult question for me to answer because I don't have the life experience myself. So maybe, and this is just my only scenario that I can think of is that in my world, An attending physician is responsible for 15 patients and it's me and maybe another APP. Sometimes it's just me and the attending. He starts on one end of the unit. I start on the other end of the unit. All of my orders are supposed to be, you know, signed off by the physician. Do you really think that physician is going to item one item by item sign and make sure that every single order is appropriate? Right. Who can you know, do so that? So I think that's where the where the, the confusion is or mm-hmm. where the where this becomes a conversation is that it's absolutely impossible for a physician to go item by item, you know, in the inpatient world. And I know in outpatient world, the the supervising the stipulations are a little bit different. And maybe Liz and Liz Leah can speak to this better, that it depends on the type of visitation. And then I think it has to do with distance from where they are, whether or not they're a phone call away versus are they physically in the facility. So I'm going to let them talk about that. Yeah. Leah, did you, do you have, cause you, what is it like for you? You have the doctors, uh, do you ever see a doctor? I have a meeting like once or twice a year. We, um, we might meet face to face. They are able to go over, you know, my, my, my um, collaborating physician is able to review my charts at any time. I'm not sure if he does. Um, We talk every now and then, but it's never, yeah, I mean, I've never had any, you know, I mean, anything where we've needed to discuss a patient. Most of my patients are pretty upfront and easy to manage their kids at school. But I do hear about some instances where people bring up bad outcomes, such as nurse practitioners overprescribe antibiotics or, you know, I mean, this and that and the other thing, they'll go ahead and say that those things happen due to lack of oversight by, you know, I mean, a collaborative physician. I haven't seen much of that. Okay. So what is the actual liability? Like who really gets sued? Let's say an NP makes a massive error, a massive mistake. Who's actually held accountable? I believe it'd be the NP as well as the collaborating physician. They would both be held liable. Yeah, because we're all 
are required to carry liability insurance, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so I, like I said, I don't think it has, we're both so, liable. We're both so liable. I mean, the reason why I asked that question is because that's a big, with this PPP, that's a big point that they make, that if the MD is signing off on the charts, that the MD is ultimately responsible and that the MD's license could be taken away by an NP who's making a, an egregious error and they are not physically able to supervise that NP. Well, it sounds like they're making an argument for full practice authority. <laughs> Can I ask a question too? I don't know if this is like, um, is it, I think this was probably through the PPP thing that I saw, but do nurse practitioners answer, like who do they answer to if they're held liable? Because someone wrote in that like you don't answer to the medical board. So if you're answering to a different board, are you held to the same standard of care if you do make an error? Uh, yeah. I'm, That's because the standard of care is still the standard of yeah, care. Yeah, no, I'm, so I'm still just, very much yeah. liable. I can be sued just like, just like a physician. You know, it, it, it has to do with state practice act. So when a physician signs a collaborative agreement with me, we are both responsible for my actions. And I think that's what it comes down to is that I'm not scot-free, but neither is the physician. So, and that's the risk. And maybe that's why many physicians don't agree to collaborative agreements. And I'm just spitballing that one because I have no idea how that, how any physicians feel about that. But the same would be true for supervising a resident. So I don't think that that argument holds any water. I, uh, good point. Good point. Yeah. So I, that, that, that doesn't point. make any sense to me because I, I will tell you too, as a experience having, you know, across the spectrum of training, some people sign your note, they are quote unquote supervising you. They never read it. They maybe didn't see the patient that day. So like not my current health system, of course, but in certain mm-hmm. other places that may have happened in the past. So that is something that can definitely happen. And I don't think that's a good way to argue for or against, you know, APPs being part of the team because I'm, I'm liable either way. If the potassium is eight and you write for potassium replacement, doesn't matter if, what your title is. If I'm supervising you, I'm on the hook. So. Mm-hmm. I think they were using it against as an argument against full practice authority, saying that if you saw a nurse practitioner and your nurse practitioner made an error, you couldn't hold your nurse practitioner accountable like you could your physician because like only physicians are held to that same high standard, which oh my god. I think so. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that's just that's yeah. just internet bullying. Jeez, oh man. Yeah. yeah, like the first thing I tell my patients and their families is that I'm a nurse practitioner, but they can expect the same standards of care that they would get from a physician. And that's one of the yeah. You know, I differentiate the roles, but I do tell them that I'm held to the same standards, and they are going to receive the same standards of care. Okay, really quickly, I just want to. I just I, I just want to put the nail in the coffin for the AANP real quick. Sorry. Are you first of all, wait, are you guys associated with them? Okay. I, for I just realized hours through their I'm, a, organization. I'm a member. Do you mean yeah. does that does that make me associated with them? I don't yes, know. Yes, it does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm a member, yes. <laughs> okay. N- no, nothing against you. I'm just curious. So there are hundred and fourteen thousand members in the United States, and there's 290,000 NPs nationally. I think that that's 
really important to mention. It's $125 a year for a nurse practitioner to remain. And these are the things on their website that they say that you get. CEs, education, discounts on conferences, job networking, state and federal advocacy was a whole section, which is part of what they do. So it's important, I think, to mention because, you know, it begs the question, what's their actual agenda? I don't think we have time to get into all that. <laughs> but the, the AMA is the same way. So they have this, it's the same structure. Just fortunately, I think it's still the largest membership organization for physicians. But that being said, I think a lot of people don't belong to it. Like I don't belong to that. They don't, they don't represent me. So mm-hmm. I don't yeah. know about Liz and Leah, but I question my membership to that organization every year. I, I keep it out of quite honestly guilt sometimes, but I, I, once again, my membership is due coming up and I still trying to figure out if I should really pay for it. I find more value in my membership to the AACN for critical care nurses. Mm-hmm. And I find more value in my membership to the SCCM society of critical care medicine than the AANP. Cause the, and it's just, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't find much value in it and sorry, AANP. <laughs> we're sorry. I do like them with CEs. The CEUs are were really, really good. And so I did belong to them for about a year. And now I belong to the National Association of School Nursing because it's just what I do. Yeah, I joined this year because I needed my CEs for my every accreditation. Um, and the other <laughs> So that's how they get you. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing I wanted to say is that that's the credentialing board as well. The two options are ANCC or AANP. Mine is through ANCC. I have to say I enjoy the I enjoy the continuing education from A and P more than ANCC. It's more my I don't know. That might be a controversial thing to say, but really enjoy their stuff more. Okay. Really quickly, I'm just gonna list. There's two lists here, and then we're gonna do closing statements and we're done. So there's arguments for and against. We're going to do arguments for independent practice. If you guys want to just quickly chime in your little thoughts, I'm going to, I'm going to say the whole thing all at once. Okay. So NPs during COVID, they took on a lot of responsibility more than anybody ever thought that they could handle. So why, why can't they push for independent practice, especially in primary care? They get lower reimbursement from Medicare. Therefore it's cost effective. They're documented to have higher patient satisfaction, more patient education. It addresses the physician shortage, especially in primary care. NPs carry their own malpractice insurance. And a lot of the MDs who are currently overseeing NPs are doing so in name only. What do you guys think about that? My first goes in terms of like the 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 opposite perspective is that I know it took me several years to feel comfortable. And so I feel like there needs to be some stipulations around it where it's not instantaneous. Like you don't graduate and then you're independent. I don't think that's safe. Yeah, in Pennsylvania, they were pushing for three years of collaborative practice prior to becoming full practice authority. And I think that that pretty much got nipped. I don't think we're going to see that right now. But I feel as though that would be, I, I would feel comfortable with that. Three years of collaborative followed by independent. Yeah. Okay. I don't know um, how I feel about. I don't know. What, I don't know what the sweet number is, but I know that you need to have more experience. Well, three to five. Three to five consistent in one 
field of practice. I think that's the tricky part is that like if I switch to neuro-oncology, I can do that if I want. I can open up my own practice like that. No, I'm not. But like if there's no regulation there, then you're relying on somebody to do the ethical thing. I think Sean has Mm -hmm. brought up too. I think there's just such a large difference between inpatient and outpatient. Like even as a resident in the outpatient setting, it's not as collaborative as the inpatient setting is. As a resident, I see my own patients. My attending does not see them unless I have a specific question that I need my attending to address that requires a physical exam or physical contact with a patient. So I think that like I don't I don't ask my attending questions about my outpatient panel unless I have specific questions that I need them to address. So I think outpatient is just like a totally different world than inpatient. Like inpatient at every level requires collaboration with everyone on the team. And patient care isn't efficient and does not have good outcomes unless everyone's on the same page. So I think it's just like a totally different beast, inpatient and outpatient. And I think that kind of affects what the answer to that question would be. Definitely. I mean, that's where the push came from, Tara, is that it originated from that scenario that I talked about, the population of 50, is that that's where full practice authority originated, is that nurse practitioners were finding over and over again that their collaborative physician would not renew or they would move away and they had no options for their patients, so their patients mm-hmm. suffered. So that that's the push that the AANP does. And I could re- agree with that particular scenario, but I also still believe that there needs to be standardization of education and a minimum experience across the board, every state, in every way, everybody does it the same. Abby knows this as I've talked about it before, and that's the problem with NP education and training is the horrible variability is that when a resident shows up in whatever capacity, they tell me that they're a second year ED resident. I know immediately what they what they have done and seen. Or I'm a first year neurology intern. I know exactly where they at least are starting. They may have had years of other experience and other things, and they may have traveled you know, across country and things like that. But their base education is the same. When a critical care fellow shows up first year, I usually have to ask what their residency was in, but I still have a really good understanding of their education and training in that moment in time right then and there. I don't have to feel them out. I don't have to watch them. I don't have to monitor them and decide on where they're falling on the bell curve. I know where they started. Nurse practitioners don't do that in any way because... You could find someone that has the exact same training level of experience as me and we'll be two completely different people. And, it, and it's the, that bell curve is not as uniform. It's, it's, it's skewed horribly. And that's my problem with NP education is the variability. I, it drives me insane. And I, I am one of the most passionate nurse practitioners for nurse practitioners, but I am also as everyone has figured out, I'm going to tell you how it really is, is that a lot of NPs can be very dangerous because they think they know more than they do. The the Dunning and Kruger effect is horrible in the nurse practitioner world because of that variability. And that's why I have a problem with it. So if you could find me a way to put the outpatient FNPs into this bubble, then I think they all should be able to 
get full practice authority because our patients need it. Anything other than that bubble, there needs to be a standardization in some way. I think that's great. Okay, wait, that's a good way to close. (laughs) Okay, can we just go around real quick? Everybody say if there's anything, a way to come together on this issue or things that they wish that the other side knew or anything, anything you want to say, just go around. (laughs) I I mean, come on, everybody, everybody that's been on this call has agreed with, (laughs) with, everybody has the same mind, uh, or I'm sorry, approach. Mm-hmm. We all feel in the team is stronger with NPs and physicians working together. NPs who know their role and understand their role. Physicians who understand their role as well as the NP role and how it can benefit a patient. What else really matters? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't really care about anything else. If you, can, if you have a better idea on how to care for my sick patient, I want to hear it. And vice versa. Mm. And I think that's that's the key is that you have to be open-minded. You know, egos hurt patients, period. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I've had to learn that the hard way, both not only from my colleagues, but from myself, is that your ego gets in the way and you try to be the answer man instead of the, you know, the patient, you know, advocating for the patient. You want to be the person who has all the answers. Your patients suffer, not you. So it's all about it. this. Oh, I could keep going on. It's all about the patient. It really is. Yeah. So. I, I think it's important too that as, you know, I'm not an NP. I, I'm still a bedside ICU RN. I think nursing, we need to take more responsibility for uplifting our own practice and not trying to compare it to doctors or anyone else. We have our own thing and we need to be proud of ourselves and we need to promote ourselves and the things that we do bring to the table. Instead of saying, I can be, you know, a neurosurgeon or whatever, brain of a doctor, heart of a nurse, whatever that junk is. Instead of that, why not say, like, I actually understand how patient care workflow, I know that really well. I understand how a unit is run really well. I understand that I can't start CVVH at 2 a.m. when they're short-staffed and, you know, like that kind of stuff. Why can't we own our role more? Why do we have to keep pushing for this other thing that isn't isn't ours, really? We have our own stuff, (laughs) (laughs) let's promote us, you know? So that's it for me. I don't know, unless you have anything else, guys. I'm going to say that I definitely agree with what Sean said about, you know, I think that it's, it really needs to be about putting the patient first and also about safety and also about access. I think that that might be the strongest argument that I can make for the NP role is that we, especially on the outpatient side and also on the inpatient side, you know, I mean, we create greater access and more safety for those patients. We create, yeah, you know, I mean, through a different perspective other than the medical model, you know, I mean, we create a different aspect of care for that patient. We come at it. I come at my my outpatient care with ten years of ER experience, which has lended itself really well to this really weird school nursing where I never know what I'm going to see when I walk in the door on that day. <laughs> so it's, you know, I mean, I think that we all bring experiences and strengths and various levels of education, which can all benefit our patients, and that there's space and money for all of us <laughs> in this <laughs> in this world. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. 
In terms of a solution, maybe just for how people can come together on this, I just think it's nice for people to get off of like social media in general and like talk to each other and talk to like the actual humans in your life, just because that's kind of how I've gathered most of my information on this topic. And it seems significantly different from the information other people have gathered from elsewhere, probably on both sides. I mean, I've seen some of the posters against physicians and primary care in general and like doctors not wanting to go into primary care. And as someone who loves primary care and is passionate about it and went to med school because of it, you know, I don't like that stuff either being used to like, I don't think any of it's nice to attack a whole profession just based on like one statistic or anything like that. So I think it's just good for people to Thank you guys so much for being a part of this discussion, for taking three hours of your life out for, I think, empowering healthcare providers and empowering collaborative agreement. I mean, this is a step forward. This is positive, not Reddit threads and all of that stuff. So I really, really appreciate all of you for being here. Um, This was wonderful. Thank you guys so much. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so excited. This was so great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Erica, Tara, Matt, Leah, Sean, Liz. Um, I couldn't have done this without you guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Please, please, please like, subscribe, share the podcast. This is brand new and I really appreciate everybody who has been so far. Um, we really need the love right now. Um, And if you want to send us your ideas or topics or suggestions or critiques, I got one of those so far. And actually, it was much appreciated and I will read it at a different time. Um, So send those to rnmdpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow the Nocturnal Nurse, which is me, on Instagram. And you can also follow rnmdpodcast on Instagram. Okay, we'll see you next week. All right, bye, bye.